Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles. Let's put our hard hats on. Let's go to work. We are working through Ephesians. And I say it's work because uh, the Bible is meant for our sanctification. And we share a part in that. Now, we'll say every Sunday here, I hope that salvation is by grace. It's a gift of God. But as we grow in that grace, once the Lord pronounces us forgiven, we have to make an effort. We have to get up and come to church. We have to open up our Bibles. We have to do the hard work of scripture memory. But it is a joyous work and there's uh, great benefits for those who are willing to do it. Now let's uh, look at the word. You remember that last week we uh, began by talking about Trinitarian theology. Uh, The first 14 verses lays out what each member of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit did in bringing about our salvation. And the people that the salvation was brought about for, Paul calls saints and the faithful ones. And for the rest of the book, he simply shortens that to the plural pronoun us. Paul is a Christian, he's writing to other Christians, and he uses words like us and we to describe the elect, the saints, the faithful ones in Christ. Last week we also saw the will of the Father expressed in eternity past. He said before the foundation of the world in choosing those he would save and predestining them to be his own children. Now this occurred as we saw in the scripture without our input. In fact, it occurred before any of us were born or even our parents or grandparents or great grandparents were born. God did it motivated by love. He chose to love the unlovable and he did it, the scripture says, to show forth his own glory. Now the message today brings this plan into human history. This is the work of the Son, the second person of the Trinity, to bring this plan that was formulated in eternity past into time and space at the cross. And we call this concept redemption. Redemption is the working out of God's eternal plan in human history. Redemption then is the work of the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God. So let's back up to verse 1 for context and read through verse 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading, the hearing, the study of his word. Now the first thing we see from this passage is redemption's person. Paul refers to redemption's person as the beloved. 
When he described God the Father, he used the word blessed. God the Father is the blessed one. That's one of his titles. One of the titles of Jesus, the Son of God, is the beloved one, the one that God loves, in other words. Several times in the New Testament, we find God the Father showing pleasure in the Son. Now, you know that I have a son. Andrew, he's four years old. He has three sisters. And occasionally, I'll take a picture on my phone of something Andrew is doing it, and I will send it to some of my pastor friends. And occasionally, I'll mark a scripture reference on there that says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. <laughs> God the Father said that at least twice in the scripture, didn't he? When Jesus was baptized, he said, behold, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, my beloved son in whom I am pleased. I think the clearest place in the Bible where God showed pleasure with the son was at the resurrection. Because at the resurrection, God the Father confirmed everything that Jesus did and planned to do was completed and he was pleased with it. And so he brought him forth from the grave victorious. And so redemption's person then is Jesus. So the, the reason that you and I are acceptable to God the Father, the reason that he invites us to draw near to him in prayer and fellowship is that we are, remember, in Christ. That is the reason we have relationship. We are in Christ because of our relationship to Christ, because of the grace appropriated by faith, we are also, get this, now beloved by the Father. And this amazing truth came about by redemption, which is our theme today. Now the word redemption or to redeem in its verb form means to purchase. Um, now, there are several Greek words in the New Testament that are translated in our English Bible as redemption or to redeem, but they all have the same basic meaning. It means to set someone free by paying a price, to set someone free by paying a price. Now, in the ancient world, there were between six and 10 million slaves at the time of the writing of the New Testament. That's hard to imagine, but there were. Um, and they were often, these slaves, bought and sold in open-air markets called the agora. And that's where we get the English word, by the way, agoraphobia, someone who's afraid to go outside of their home into a public place. So one of the Greek words for redemption means taken out of the market, ex agora. However, the word here used in Ephesians for redemption basically means to loosen and to set free. Someone is tied up or they're chained up and someone unlocks those chains and sets them three. That's the word for redemption. That is the work of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. He sets us free. Now, if you have someone who's the redeemer, who's setting people free, you have to someone have, have objects of redemption, those who are set free. Well, that's us, Paul says, the elect, the saints of God, the faithful ones. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, in him, that is in the beloved, who is Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. Well, you think about that, that, that God the Father was willing to send the one he loved, Jesus, and Jesus was willing to die in our place to set us free. We certainly must have been something special for God to do that, right? A lot of people believe that. They think God saw in us some hint of immortality. He saw in us some hint of goodness, some potential for greatness. Well, let's read Ephesians 2, 1 and following and see if that's the case. 
Paul, describing us in our sinful condition, says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So Paul doesn't say that God saw in us some potential. In fact, he said he saw us in our sin. We were motivated by lust. We were overwhelmed by our own sinfulness. And so what does God do? Verse 4 says, but God, rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. That's why he saved us. Not because he saw potential in us, but to show forth his glory because of the great love that he determined to love us with. Now we need to pause for a moment here and, and, and catch our breath. If Jesus is the Redeemer, the one who sets people free, and we, the saints, are the objects of his redemption, the ones being set free, the question is begged, to what are we set free from? If that's proper grammar, it's probably not. But what, what do we need to be set free from? Well, the answer is one little three-letter word, sin. Not complicated. As a matter of fact, it's as simple as 6, 7, and 8. That is Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. Romans 6, 17 says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. Paul describes lost people as being enslaved to sin. Now, people who are really living it up in sin usually think they're the freest birds around, right? I do whatever I want to do. I, I don't answer to anybody. If I want to stay out late, I do. I sleep with whoever I want to. I take whatever illicit drug I want to. I'm free. The Bible says they're enslaved to their sins and they don't even know it. And so what Jesus does, he sets us free. Romans 7, 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, listen to this, sold in bondage to sin. Again, Paul says, before we were saved, we are in bondage. We are slaves of sin. Romans 8, 21, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery. Paul says, even the earth is enslaved. Now, this all goes back, as you know, to the Garden of Eden. God had created this perfect environment and created his highest creation, man and, and woman, Adam and Eve, set them in the midst of this perfect creation. He had given them only one prohibition. They were not to eat of this particular tree, the fruit of it, that was in the midst of the garden. What did they do? They ate of it. And God the Father came and pronounced judgment, a sin curse passed not only to Adam and Eve, but to all of their descendants. And so we are born sinners, right? With a sin curse of death hanging over our heads. We are born, as it were, in bondage. So one way to correctly describe Christians, if you want to define a Christian, it's someone who has been set free from the domination and the tyranny of sin in their lives. That's who a Christian is. Now remember Paul's prayer and purpose in writing this letter is that the light would come on. Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. Remember what he prayed? He said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened that you will know what is the hope of the calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us. And so we need to think long and hard. That's why I said we need to put our hard hats on. We need to go to work in mining the riches of God's grace. Now, when we think of salvation, it is sometimes helpful 
to think of it from different perspectives, right? If you're building a building or you're admiring some creation like the Grand Canyon, you, you want to get and see it from different perspectives. You want to hike to the bottom and look up. You want to get to the edge and look down. Maybe you want to take a helicopter ride and go all around it. It's the same Grand Canyon, but it's seen and viewed from different perspectives. Well, one perspective on our salvation is from the past. In the past, there was a point in which we were saved from the wrath of God. And so we might ask someone, when were you saved? It's that moment in time where God showed you your guilt, you called out for salvation, and, and God said, I forgive you through justification. That was in the past. But, but also in the present, we are being saved from the power of sin. We call that sanctification. And this is the part where we have to give effort. As God separates us from sin, the means that he uses to do that is Christian fellowship and prayer and Bible study. All of these things work together to separate us from sin and, and make us more like our Savior. And he's in the process of doing that in the present. So in the future, though, we can say we will be saved from the very presence of sin, right? And that's only when we get to heaven. And that's one of the things that makes heaven so attractive. The more we understand the sinfulness of sin is that in heaven, we're going to be saved from the very presence of sin and glorification. Now we said last week at the moment of conversion, we are set free positionally. Jesus unlocks our chains, sets us free. So God views us as, what are the two words? Holy and blameless. But I also hasten to say last week, even though that's our position, that's how God sees us because we're in Christ and that's who Jesus is. In practice, we don't always live that, that way, right? We as even Christians continue to sin. And so uh, sanctification is where our position and our practice meet when we become more like in action, in, in word and in thought like Jesus. So we've seen the Redeemer. Who's that? That's the Lord Jesus. That's the work of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. We've seen the objects of redemption. That's believers, the saints. And then thirdly, there's redemption's cost, okay? We've said redemption is paying a price to set someone free. How much is this going to cost? Well, that, that's our third point. You know the answer to this already. Because you know Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. And to a Jewish person, the shedding of blood did not just mean a bloodletting, it meant death. Because it harkened back to the sacrificial system where they would bring their animals and the priest would cut the animal until it bled out and, and died. Romans 6.23 says it even more clearly, the wages of sin is what? It's death. We know the cost of sin. Now in the Old Covenant, that was pictured every time they brought a lamb or a cow, or a goat, or a pigeon, or whatever they could afford, and they saw it die in front of them. That was to remind them of the high cost of their sin. It also was a foreshadowing, a typical prophecy of the one who was worthy, the one who would come in the future from their perspective, the eternal Son of God. Now, here we are 2,000 years after the cross. We look back in hindsight. The Old Testament saints look forward to the cross, but it was the same atonement that saved all of us. Now, I want you to know that this isn't some unimportant doctrine. This isn't some secondary or tertiary issue that, that it's fun to look at, but really not essential. This 
doctrine of the atonement and of redemption through the blood of Jesus is the theme of the whole New Testament. Now, we need to know that it offends a lot of people, right? Now, as a pastor and as a Christian, we ought not to ever aim at offending people for offense sake. But you do know that the gospel is offensive, right? Not everyone's going to receive it with joy. In fact, a lot of people are repulsed by the idea that God sent his son to die a shameful death on the cross and they want no part of it. Well, if they want no part of the cross, they want no part of Jesus. Because what does the gospel say in Mark 10, 45? For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The reason Jesus was born was to die in our place. Every time we get together and, and share the Lord's Supper together, that's what we're reminding each other of, right? And I read last time we did the Lord's Supper, Matthew 26, 26, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take ye, this is my body. And then he had taken a cup and given thanks. He gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Jesus knew this was essential and fundamental to the faith. 1 Corinthians 1.30, but by, doing, by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Even in the pastoral epistles. By the way, you see this theme of redemption in every genre of the New Testament. You see it in the Gospels. You see it in the historical books like Acts. You see it in the epistles of Paul and Peter. And you see it even in the pastorals. 1 Timothy 2.6, for example. Speaking of Jesus, Paul says, He gave himself as a ransom for all. Titus 2.14, He gave himself up to redeem us from every lawless deed. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Acts 20.28, 20, be on guard for yourselves and for the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. And then I think my favorite as it relates to redemption is 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. We studied 1 Peter together here for six months recently. And remember what Peter said in the very first chapter of his epistle. He says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold. Now, you and I don't generally think of precious metals in the category of perishable, right? We put things like foodstuffs and wooden objects and straw things that deteriorate rapidly as perishable. But silver and gold, we think, well, that's, that's got some weight and substance. But from God's perspective, even silver and gold are perishable. Right? So he says, we weren't redeemed, we weren't purchased, we weren't set free with even silver or gold, the most precious things we can think of. But instead, he says, with precious blood, as the lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So he describes Jesus' blood as precious now, what makes something precious? Well, I think two things. It's rarity and it's, it's perceived value. Now, the blood of Jesus is rare, not because of his blood type was different than everyone else's. It's that it was unstained by sin. See, the reason that it wouldn't have done any good for any other person or group of people or even millions of people to be crucified on the cross is because all of those people have one thing in common. They're all sinners. And they needed to have someone die in their place. So God, 
in his divine plan, sent Jesus, his son, to break into human history and time and place and live a perfect life so that he could go to the cross and die and shed his blood for us. That's an exceedingly rare thing. It's also valuable because for all who will call upon the name of the Lord, they will be eternally saved. The Bible says this, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What if a person gains the whole world, that is he becomes the wealthiest man on planet earth and dies in his sins? All of that ultimately is going to be proven to be of no value compared to the surpassing greatness of being saved by the Lord's grace. Well, those are just a sample. I have two more pages of those verses, but you can look those up on your own. Time is running out, and so let's go to our fourth point. We've seen the Redeemer, the Beloved, the Lord Jesus. We've seen the objects of redemption. That's all of us, the elect. We've seen the price of our redemption, which is the precious blood of Christ, His death on the cross. And then fourthly and finally, redemption's purpose. Why did He do it? Well, as we saw last week, the answer to that question, anything God does, He does it for His own glory. But in this case, He gives us a deeper answer. He allows us to look at it from the human perspective and says, here are the benefits that are accrued to those who will accept it. Verse 7, he says, the forgiveness of sins. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So there's a number of words in the New Testament that we translate as sin. One of them is to go beyond those of you who are hunters know if you see a sign that says no trespassing, you can come up to this point, but if you cross that point, you are breaking the law. Well, the Bible says all of us have trespassed. We've gone past the boundaries that the Lord has set up through the law. And because of that, we stand guilty before him. But through Christ and a relationship with him, through redemption, we now are forgiven. God says not guilty any longer. That is, we are made acceptable to God. Remember, God is holy, He's perfect. And for us to have a relationship, to draw near to Him, certainly to live with Him for eternity, we have to be clean. And this is what happens. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness and makes us acceptable to the Father. Now, when you were in school and you got a grade back and it said acceptable, that probably didn't impress your parents too much, right? That just meant you did the bare minimum. And so unless you think that God just does the bare minimum in redeeming us, he gives us some insight and he says this, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us, right? Remember Ephesians is the, the checkbook of God's grace. It's the storehouse of his blessing and we said God's grace is infinite. He keeps giving it and it keeps replenishing itself. It will never run out. And I think when I hear that word lavished about the woman with the alabaster box of perfume, do you remember? Came to Jesus with this costly perfume in this alabaster box and rather than taking a little bit of it and dabbing it upon Jesus, she broke it open and poured it out on him. The whole thing. And remember that offended some of Jesus' disciples that, oh, what a waste. Jesus rebuked them for that, right? Because this is how he saves us. He lavishes us with grace according to his ability to do that. Now, what does that mean, that he gives us grace according to his riches? Well, the only way I can explain it is this. Let's say we went to the wealthiest man 
in America who is Bill Gates, depending on what the stock market did last week. He's worth upwards of 50 or more billion dollars. And we say, Mr. Gates, there's a, a new wing on the Children's Hospital downtown that we're trying to raise some money for. Would you be willing to participate? He goes, oh, that's a, a, a cause near and dear to my heart. And he reaches in his wallet and he pulls out a 50 and says, Lord bless you. Would you say he gave out of his riches or according to? Out of, not commiserate with his ability, right? On the other hand, if we came to Mr. Gates and we say, Mr. Gates, uh, we're building a wing on the Children's Hospital for cancer research. And he said, oh, that's a, that's a project near and dear to my heart. And he fetches the checkbook and he writes out a check for the entire cost and more. Now he's given according to his riches, right? Well, this is how God gives. Never in meted out doses, but in full measure, he lavishes his grace upon those he chooses to save. Well, that's not the end of it. It's not that just he makes us acceptable. We get in by the skin of our teeth. Look what he says in verse five. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now he not only gives us grace and salvation, he gives us a title and he gives us a ring and a robe to wear just as the prodigal son in the gospels. And he says, this is my son who was lost, but now he's found. And that's for every believer. What glorious truth. That's not the end of it either. Remember I said there's a future aspect to our salvation. Paul alludes to that here in verse nine. He says, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Does that remind you of some other New Testament passage? It reminds me of Philippians chapter two, where Paul says that we have this attitude in ourselves, the same attitude that Christ had, not selfishness, but he emptied himself, he poured himself out, left the glories of heaven, took on the form of a servant, lived a perfect life, died a shameful death on the cross. But that's not the end of it. Remember what he said? Because of this, Paul says in Philippians 2, one day every knee will bow of things in heaven and the earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what he's describing here in verses 9 and 10. And guess what? You and I get to be a part of it. We get to be there. We get to glory in it. We get to, to see the glory of Christ on display for all of eternity. And that great truth is part of redemption. What about you, dear one? You're here today and this sounds awfully good to you, but uh, how do you get your hands on it? You've heard that salvation is by grace. It's a gift of God, but how do I receive it? Well, the scripture says by faith. That is, you just put your faith and trust in what Jesus did in, in your place. As you give up on everything you've been trying to do. You give up on being good enough. You can't be. You give up on doing enough good deeds. You won't ever accomplish that. And you come to him as a spiritual beggar with empty hands and pockets outturned. And you say with the tax collector, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And the glorious and wonderful truth is that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus said in John 6, no one's ever coming to me that I've cast out that comes to me with that kind of humility. Right where you are today, you can cry out to God in your heart, turn from sin, call upon the name of the Lord. 
It's not just that he makes you acceptable. He takes away your sin as far as the east is from the west. He infills you with his very presence through the Holy Spirit. He gives you a family. All these people will become your family, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just us, but every believer from all time in every epoch of history. You become part of that eternal family of God. I invite you here today, if you don't know the Lord, to receive his gift through faith. Maybe there's a Christian here today and and you've been a Christian a long time, but you haven't really done a hard work in a long time of trying to understand your salvation. You sort of just have your ticket to heaven and you're content to, to hold on until the time comes. And I pray today that all of us would become discontent with where we are spiritually, that we would have a deep and yearning desire to be more like Jesus every day. Would you confess that to the Lord right here now? That you've grown cold in your walk with Him. Would you ask Him to reinvigorate your sanctification? Would you commit yourself to doing those things that you need to do? Reading your Bible, coming to church more regularly, investing yourselves in other Christians in fellowship so that you may grow in the image of Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the precious verses that we've studied today, so rich and deep. And Lord, I just stand amazed once again that you lavished, you poured out in abundance according to your wealth, your grace. Thank you for that, Jesus. Lord, I pray that every person in this room will experience that truth today. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.